Hello everyone, I'm Frank Garz with Lean Startup Company, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the show. Real quick before we get started, just a reminder that the annual Lean Startup Conference is coming up quick in San Francisco, October 23rd to 25th at the beautiful Palace of Fine Arts. We have sessions for startups, enterprise and government organizations, nonprofits, and a Lean Startup Core Concepts track to help you learn how to build a better company. For our listeners, we want to extend a special discount code. You can register at leanstartup.co forward slash 2019 and use the code LEANCAST2019 at checkout. We also have booths available at our Innovation Marketplace, so if you're looking to get brand exposure, this is the place. You can find more information on that at leanstartup.co forward slash 2019 or contact us at info at leanstartup.co. Hope to see you in San Francisco. And with that, I'll hand things off to Chris Guest, who's moderating today's show. Hi, and welcome to this new edition of the Lean Startup Podcast. And today's guest is the co-founder and CEO of a new startup called Blueland. And this is one of those rare startups where the proposition is so compelling it's so simple yet relevant and needed today that it just had me at hello. Like after four words, I thought, okay, I want that. I know my wife will love it and pretty much all of her friends too will do as well. But before we get to that, uh, just a couple of housekeeping uh, about some changes that we have here on the podcast. First of all, we're going for an audio only format. Um, some of the feedback from the listeners is that we wanted to just double down on things like audio quality and uh, skip the webcast, so no video today. And we're also gonna allow ourselves to go a little bit longer and a little bit deeper into the conversation of the guests. So not exactly sure how long this will be. I guess we'll run with it and see how it goes. And also me as well. So I'm new, hi, my name's Chris Guest. And despite how I sound, I work here in San Francisco, California. I've been a lean startup practitioner for about four to five years. And it's fair to say that I'm a proud lean startup enthusiast. So it really is an honor to be talking with you all here today. By day, I am Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at Topology Eyewear, where we make custom tailored eyeglasses for one person at a time based on a scan of their face from an iPhone. And you can find me on Twitter at Gesto, or on LinkedIn at slash Chris Guest. But enough about me, because uh, today is all about our guest. And so today we have with us Sarah Paiji Yu, who's the co-founder and CEO of Blueland. Hi, Sarah, and welcome. Hi, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. Great. So before we get on to Blueland, um, I wanted to dwell a little bit on your amazing background, which I think is just the ideal prep ground for everything that you're doing at Blueland. So could you give us a, a little radio edit on your background and career to this day? Sure. Um, so while I started my career pretty traditionally uh, in, in finance, investing and consulting, um, I've been a serial entrepreneur for the past 10 years um, in the direct-to-consumer and retail space. So my first startup was a mobile shopping app called SnapBet uh, that I started in 2010. Um, as a founder and CEO, you know, venture backed. Um, it was a, a location-based uh, shopping app that helped consumers find products and stores around them. So it really was at the height of the sort of social, local, mobile craze. Um, 
that business I grew for about four years um, and then had the opportunity to sell that business to one of the world's largest shopping search engines at the time, which was Price Grabber. Um, and then after Congratulations. that, I had, thank you. Thank you. So it was a, it was a good sort of first win. Uh, and after that sort of, you know, I, I, I definitely got the, you know, company building bug. And, you know, after my one year lockup at Price Grabber, I was dying to get back into the early stage company building game. And mm -hmm. so at that point, um, I helped start a startup studio, creatively named Launch, uh, with a few partners. And through the startup studio, we had this thesis going into the startup studio that, um, you know, it was still very early innings for direct-to-consumer. You know, at that point, you know, Warby Parker was kind of the big example, but it was our view that um, whole categories would continue to move sort of online and direct-to-consumer. And so uh, we started the startup studio with, um, the plan on launching about one new business per year, mm -hmm. uh, which is what we then did um, for the next four years. We launched uh, four businesses over the next four years. Uh, the first one was Mgemi, which is direct-to-consumer luxury footwear. Then we launched Rockets of Awesome, which is a kids' clothing subscription box. And then we launched Folene, which is a clean beauty retailer. Um, and then most recently, we've launched Trade, which is a coffee marketplace. Wow, you make it sound so easy. <laughs> <laughs> Hardly, uh, but an amazing journey. And obviously, you know, launch was a fantastic way um, for me to cut my teeth, you know, launching new businesses um, and certainly was, you know, incredible prepping ground for what I'm working on now, which is Blue Land. Okay, so there's some great brands there. Um, M. is a big name. Rockets of Awesome as well. I've, I've heard the founder talk about that a few times. Are there any great war stories or insights that you could share from those days? Yeah, I mean, you know, with, with Rockets of Awesome, you know, definitely in the earliest days of, you know, that idea, we, we employed Lean Startup um, in, in a bunch of different areas. Um, you know, at that point in time, um, the idea of a kid's clothing subscription box, you know, was very new and it wasn't, you know, clear to us that consumers would want to shop that way. Um, and so instead of sort of in a black box, believing that um, consumers wanted this based on just, you know, a survey or conversations, um, we went out and recreated the service um, in a low cost way by effectively, you know, going out, buying kids clothing, kids clothing, you know, merchandising in boxes and actually sending it out to 25 families um, that we were friendly with to start to to get their feedback as to sort of what that experience was to allow a company to you know select you know an assortment of clothing and then mail it to them and then have them you know select from there great so was there something that you discovered then that that took you by surprise and that wasn't obvious in theory yeah i mean there, there was there was a bunch of things actually i think um you know, when we started, obviously, from a from a business perspective and from a subscription perspective, if you can pull off high frequency, that is sort of most ideal from a LTV perspective. Um, and so the original idea that we contemplated was a monthly box. Um, but, you know, the, the feedback, you know, came back loud and clear in the first round that that was, you know, way too frequent that, you know, parents actually preferred a seasonal box. Um, that came less frequently, but with more items versus a more frequent box with fewer items. Mm. So LTV meaning uh, lifetime value of the customer. Yes. So 
yeah, that makes sense that if you could do it monthly, then you're going to pay back or, or earn back the cost of the customer acquisition much more quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's seasonal, then it would take what a year or more potentially to earn back the, the value of that customer. And so how long did it take you to, to find out if those unit economics made sense? Yeah. So in, in that scenario, we were able, I mean, we were fortunate in that, you know, at least with this customer, um, that, that we are targeting that was really looking for convenience from the service, that if you can merchandise the right product in that box, that they would actually buy quite a bit um, in that season. And so you actually could, um, the economics could be favorable in just sort of one seasonal delivery. Um, so that was an interesting learning that the seasonal box was uh, actually better for the business because you only shipped it out once, you only merchandise it once, but you could drive such a higher basket size um, than if you were to do these smaller monthly boxes. Yeah, that makes so much sense. So you have a larger basket size and lowering shipping costs as a result of shipping. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Out in the wash and everyone's happy. Yes. Fantastic. Okay, so where in this... Um, in this background, where did you discover Lean Startup? What were you doing immediately before you discovered the Lean Startup? Yeah, so I actually read the book back in 2013. Um, and, you know, it was early days at launch. And, you know, I had a, we were applying the approach with a variety of the ideas that we had um, at the start of Studio Launch. And were there, uh, does anything stand out to you uh, that it really sort of changed your behavior or how you think about um, de-risking and launching a startup? Yeah, I think, um, I think the best thing is it, it brought a lot of focus um, to, you know, what the questions or question um, was that we were trying to answer. Because, you know, at the startup studio and at any point in time, we we're, you know, evaluating a range of ideas to really come up with what was the next business that we were going to launch. And when you come up with a brand new business, you can have a list that's like a hundred questions long that you want to go out there and validate. Um, and I think the lean startup methodology was really helpful for me because it really, you know, have, has you focus on like, what is the riskiest assumption, which makes so much sense, right? Because, you know, if that assumption, right, like doesn't pan out there, there isn't, you know, a point to really explore five, you know, five, 10 different questions. Um, if the one big one. Um, yeah, that makes so much sense. It's like, I guess it's similar to science that it's not just whether or not you can experiment, <clears throat> it's whether or not you're asking the right question and, and testing the most valuable thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. Awesome. So, uh, as I understand it, you were working at launch and then you left launch to have a baby. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Boy or a girl? Uh, I have a boy. My son, Noah, he's, he's two. Excellent. Well, I'm slightly behind you. Uh, I have a little boy too. We're on about just turned 21 months. So. Oh, amazing. It's, it just, it, it just gets better and better. Like truly. Awesome. Awesome. So that does lead us to the inevitable question of who in their right mind decides to start a startup when they've just had a baby. <laughs> yes. Um, it's funny because, you know, it just came about organically. You know, I, I definitely, um, decided to hit the pause button to step back. Um, I think I wasn't sure how I was going to feel on the other side of becoming a mom. And I was very open um, to potentially having a very different relationship 
with work. Uh, but, you know, it turned out I had my son and I still really loved um, early stage startup company building. I very much so still really wanted to work. Um, but I think the bar was then now like so much higher because if I was going to spend, you know, so much time away from my son and, you know, that is what the entrepreneurial journey often is. It is, you know, it is, it is, it can be a grind, right? It can be 24 seven, you know, whether it's, whether you're at work or it's just sort of mentally. And I think, um, again, if I was going to spend that time away from my son and my family, I want to like really make it count. And um, yeah, I just developed a, a very sort of deep-seated personal desire to do um, something more meaningful. Mm. And so that was kind of the backdrop, but I wasn't sort of out necessarily looking for an idea um, quite yet. It kind of just, it came to me. Okay, tell me more. Yeah, so, um, so I, with my son Noah, I spent 11 months exclusively breastfeeding and uh, which is the hardest thing, like truly one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, and then um, because a long trip I had ahead with my husband, I decided to switch to formula. And formula is typically a mix of powder and water. Mm -hmm. And so I then began researching what kind of water I should use for his formula. And I was actually open to even using bottled water um, if bottled water was cleaner than, than tap water. Um, and in that research, it turned out that um, regardless of whether you use tap or uh, bottled water, that drinking water contains hundreds of pieces of microplastics. Um, because all this plastic that we're consuming as a society is ending up in our oceans and our waterways where it's breaking down into these tiny pieces of microscopic uh, microplastics, which is now showing back up in the water that we drink, the food that we eat, and uh, the formula that I was making my baby. Um, so it was then that I really decided to just cut back on my plastic consumption. And that was interesting that, you know, as well-intentioned as I was, I found that as a consumer, I just really didn't have that much choice or any choice most often. If you think about like walking into a CVS or a Target, it's just aisles of plastic, you know, whether it's ketchup or dish soap or, you know, window glass cleaner or toothpaste, you know, all these products came packaged in just one way um, in single-use plastic. And so that's when it like really hit me that, you know, if I really want to have an impact beyond just my own personal consumption, um, I could, you know, I had this opportunity to potentially create products that uh, gave consumers a more earth friendly alternative. Mm. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I mean, that there's this odd kind of conundrum that arrives when you, when you become a parent, which is that uh, I know for our sake, I was just so much more conscious of, of what we feed and give our child than I ever have been for myself. Definitely. Definitely. Just got less time, less resources to do anything about it. And I, I think that probably many of us parents uh, approach being a first time parent of this myth that oh, we're going to use cloth diapers and we're going to, <laughs> you know, use the best natural of anything. And then what you find out after a couple of weeks is like, nope, this is about survival. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they say, baby um, and any of those items that you'd want to switch to that you would that would seem to be healthier, more sustainable, just come with all of this extra hassle. And it just makes it so much harder at a time when you really, really need help. Definitely, definitely. So I, I'm totally with you on that. So, uh, okay, so, so what happened next? 
Yeah, so at that point, um, at that point I was pretty focused on packaging, right? So at that point I thought, you know, these products need to come, but not in plastic. And so I started exploring all of these, you know, plastic alternatives, other materials, and, you know, kind of hit a dead end there. Um, in the sense that like, you know, people are definitely working on alternatives, but it's tough and they're expensive. And, you know, one day it just hit me, wow, like maybe, you know, these products are all packaged in plastic because they're all liquid. Um, but maybe if they weren't liquid, then we could package them in things like paper. So I guess by not liquid, I meant, you know, you look at like, you know, a multi-surface cleaner. That product is like obviously like 90, 95% water. Uh, so it was crazy to me that when I distilled it down, I was like, wow, the consumer's paying for plastic packaging and all this water. And so then I thought, why couldn't, you know, we just distill that solution down into powder or a tablet and, and the consumer could add his or her own water at home, which, which he has at home for free. And so that's kind of when the, how the wheels started turning. I mean, that, that's just a, a classic light bulb moment. I kind of pitch you sitting bolt up rather than bed and going, oh my God, <laughs> solid product, not liquid. <laughs> exactly. Uh, it reminds me of, uh, it just remind, reminds me of uh, college days when I, I studied product design and we were given a task to design, to design a jam jar that, uh, or rather design an opener for a jam jar that, that elderly people could open. And after the exercise, it turned out it was a trick question. And the question was not to design a jam jar opener, but to design a better jam jar. Jam jar, interesting. <laughs> and, and I love that way of thinking about the problem in a more first principles way is that it's not just about the packaging. The packaging is a result of the product. Mm -hmm. So the idea you had was to innovate on the product itself. That's genius. Okay, so you've spoken then about the idea of taking the product from a liquid into a solid um how did you know where to start with that was there a particular product that that appealed to you or, or, or how did you choose your first offering yeah so in terms of um the first potential offering i can't say that i was being particularly strategic it was it came more from like an emotional place where um i knew that um I wanted to start with toothpaste because the toothpaste tube had always been particularly problematic and annoying to me because it's just not recyclable. You know, it's a very durable aluminum plastic blend um, that will literally last in a landfill forever. Um, and so, yeah, that seemed like um, a great place to start. And the well, idea to the problem of having solid toothpaste. Exactly, 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 exactly. So the format um, in our minds would be this sort of chewable, dry toothpaste tablet, um, where then, you know, you could put it in your mouth, bite down a few times, and then, you know, start brushing with a wet toothbrush and then have it, have it foam up. Gotcha. And so, um, you know, at that point I was working on it with my co-founder, John, and we learned how to make, and neither of us are chemists, you know, we learned how to make a toothpaste tablet online. Um, and we were just making them in my kitchen. <laughs> okay. Hold on a sec. So you, yeah. you learned how to make in your own kitchen yes. a toothpaste tablet. Yes. <laughs> okay. And so let's, Let's just back up a sec. How did you get to this point? So you've, you've had this idea, as I understand it, the, the, the original idea, the vision is to say, okay, let's reduce 
plastic consumption. Mm-hmm. You didn't start out from saying, let's make a better toothpaste, but you wanted to reduce the plastic consumption. Yes. It sounds like you're saying that toothpaste tubes are probably the worst offender. Yes. And so that led you to toothpaste. But now you have this problem that is any gonna, anyone going to want to chew toothpaste? Because I have to say, I'm not so sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was definitely the biggest question. Our two biggest questions were, you know, would people be okay chewing their toothpaste? Mm. Um, and also, would, would people trust a new toothpaste tablet brand? I think, you know, the, the, their teeth, you know, people aren't brushing their teeth twice a day just for funsies. You know, <laughs> there's a job that they're trying to do. Yeah. Um, effectively. And so, yeah, that was, that was the second question. That we so, had. so those were your two leap of faith assumptions as we put it. Yes. Yes. Okay. So how do you, how did you test that? Did you just ask people whether they thought they'd be interested in trying a chewable toothpaste? Yeah. So that's why, so we didn't just ask, so we certainly asked folks, but we knew that people wouldn't be able to, you know, effectively answer that question without trying you know, out what we were talking about, which is why we had to then learn how to make these toothpaste tablets because we needed something to give these people. And so we actually had 50 friends um, try our toothpaste tablets using it twice a day for seven days. Um, and I checked in with them every other day um, to hear how it was going um, because my gut also was that their feelings and their experiences uh, may potentially also evolve over the course of the seventh day. Like their first impression may be very different from how they were feeling about it on the seventh day. Right. And, um, you know, ahead of going into this, you know, we knew that the big question for us was, you know, what percentage um, of these people that were trying this our toothpaste tablet for seven days would say, yes, they would make the switch to this product. Okay. So, I mean, it's great that you're actually testing something there rather than just you know because we it's better to see what people would do in real life than they would just say that they would do in theory so so that that's certainly commendable is there a concern though that you get a biased opinion by asking friends and family like how, how do you know that your friends aren't going to lie to you to to keep you happy totally totally so that that definitely you know is a real risk and i think ultimately the way that i thought about it was you know here was a really cheap, you know, and fast and a good enough way to do a first pass. Um, and, you know, certainly a lot easier than having to corral, you know, 50 people that you don't know who I would then inevitably have to like somehow find a way to like track down and then probably pay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the thought was that, you know, here's, here's what a first pass could look like. And if we can make it through this, right. And if we're still interested, then we could invest the time and the money um, to do something more robust. I see. So it's rather than trying to do a, a perfect but difficult experiment right out the gates, you've kind of broken it apart there. And did you maybe set aside the question of the brand and just sort of focus in on do people enjoy chewing toothpaste? And okay, so the so you're thinking I, I take it then was let's see if we even get a positive result from our friends and family. Yes. And then if that works, then we'll look at taking it broader. Yes. Yes, Awesome. Okay. So did you get a positive result? Um, No. (laughs) (laughs) Which is why we we don't have toothpaste tablets today. Um, No. So, you know, sadly, uh, over 75% of people um, that we tested with came back saying that they wouldn't make the switch. Okay. Um, 
So, you know, the writing was on the wall and, you know, we, you know, had told ourselves going into it that, you know, we would need at least 50% ideally saying that they would make the switch. Um, and I think, you know, I was really thankful that, you know, we kind of drew that line in the sand um, because I think had we not, um, you know, thought about what, what the ideal response rate would have been and written that down, I think it's easy to convince yourself after the fact that sort of any number is, is potentially a, a good number. Yeah, yeah. Well, that makes sense. And did you, uh, so you've set a target for yourself in advance and say, this is what we think success will look like. So you can hold yourself more accountable to that afterwards. Was that still, was that honestly easy to do though? Or did you find yourself trying to sort of rationalize what was wrong with the experiment and why if you just did it again, you get a different result? Yeah, it definitely was was not easy um, to accept, which is again why I think it was good that um, I wrote it down in mm. terms of what I wanted to have been sort of beforehand. Um, but it's hard because I think, you know, for me personally, I so desperately wanted to believe that it was a good idea. Um, I want to save the planet, and I I love the product personally. Um, I actually still use toothpaste tablets today. Um, right. And I think the product is great. Um, but, you know, sometimes it's really hard to like, especially if it's like your only path at the moment. So at that, at that point in time, it's not like we had another product that we were, you know, comparing toothpaste to and deciding, is it this or is it that? You know, we kind of, at that point, had put our eggs into the toothpaste tablet bucket, you know, learned how to make them, produced a lot. And um, it was hard. I mean, even to the extent that, you know, like when my husband was like voicing, you know, his thoughts on why, you know, toothpaste tablets, you know, were just like, you know, viscerally hard for people to take, like we'd get into like spats because I, you know, sometimes I just, I, I didn't want to hear it. I, you know, yeah. part of me just, you know, really want to believe that um, this would work and that maybe better branding or better messaging or something um, could really drive the adoption of a product like this. Yeah. I think this is one of the lesser spoken about truths of lean startup that it it seems in theory so easy that we're gonna we're gonna construct a logical experiment we're gonna define a logical outcome and when we get a factual outcome then we're gonna make a logical decision and move on but i think that as actual real humans it's much more difficult than that because you know, would you, it feels like you become emotion, really emotionally invested in the outcome and the idea. It almost becomes part of your ego and your identity that you've told so many people about this mm -hmm. and why you believe in this, that then it's, it's, I think it's so much harder to then step away from, you know, e even at the small experiment level, like I, sometimes I run an AB experiment and I'm thinking, yes, this is a well-designed experiment, but really I'm thinking, come on B, come yeah, on exactly. B, oh, it's, <laughs> Like, <laughs> like watching your horse lose in the Grand National. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm totally with you on that, and it, and it's so much harder at that that bigger level. But where did you decide to go next? Because you you've had this idea that you want to create the outcome of lesser plastic. The product that you foresaw was the toothpaste, um, and the customer. How did you define your customer for throughout all of this? Yeah, so all of this, it's interesting. I think, you know, from the inception um, of this idea for Blue Land, you know, we really want to build a brand 
for like the everyday regular consumer. We didn't want um, to build something just for the hardcore environmentalists. And, you know, ultimately I thought about it um, from an environmental perspective in terms of to truly maximize our environmental impact, um, we really had to maximize our reach. And so kind of going into this, I knew that um, we want to flip sort of all the conventional notions of eco on its head in terms of like, you know, you hear eco and you think, okay, it's going to be more work. It's going to be more expensive and it's going to be less effective. Mm. And I felt like, again, truly to get as many people to participate, ideally every household in America um, with these products that, you know, I want to put out into the world that they need to the products that one actually worked right as well as the comparable or better than the comparable brands um, they were cost effective or money saving um, to to um, what was currently being used on the market mm. uh, and that they were easy to use that you know they weren't um, we weren't asking people to jump through a ton of hoops um, to to use the product mm. so it sounds like that is a dream that could live on beyond toothpaste itself so mm -hmm. so where did you go from there yeah, so then at that point, um, we did have a list of other products, obviously, that we thought um, this concept was very interesting for, um, like cleaning sprays. And I think the toothpaste experience really highlighted for us that we needed to pick, uh, we needed to probably start with categories where the switching costs were lower um, for the consumer. And what I mean by that are like, you know, products like a toothpaste or a deodorant or a shampoo. Um, sometimes have really high sort of like performance threshold or consumers are expecting sort of, you know, are, and they're harder for a consumer to switch away from what they're currently using. Mm. Um, so it's and, a sort of a experiential ratitudinal switching cost rather than say a financial switching cost. Yes, exactly. Gotcha. Exactly. 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 Um, and so at that point we, you know, we were exploring um, not just personal care products, but also cleaning products and, you know, we at that point explored like cleaning sprays, you know, liquid hand soap and a variety of other areas. But, you know, cleaning sprays seem like, um, you know, a good potential target, you know, one, because it was that product was quite intuitive to consumers that it was mostly most all water. Um, and so it felt like it was it'd be easier to tell that story and it'd be easier for consumers to understand why a tablet plus water could equal a full bottle of cleaning solution. Mm. Um, Versus a toothpaste tablet, you know, we realized in the process it was not intuitive to a lot of people when they saw a toothpaste tablet, like what they would then do with that product. You know, a lot of people thought like, am I eating that, <laughs> right? Or am I just like chewing it and spitting it out? Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, have a, we had a handful of other, you know, product categories that we had ideas for. Um, uh -huh. But, you know, they were harder places to start because... Um, they were not ones that we could easily just, you know, create. Gotcha. Well, I mean, this sounds like a, you know, a textbook pivot in a way, because you've got, you know, how, as we define it, a, a changing, changing strategy without a change in vision. So the vision is to reduce the plastic. You went to toothpaste because it's such a bad offender in terms of the pollution and the waste, but it's not the only one. And in fact, there's an enormous dent that could be made by a different product. And so you're choosing a different product that's a different strategy to achieve that same outcome. Mm -hmm. So again, in theory, per the textbook, that sounds easy and logical and brilliant. But I wonder, was it, was it difficult for you and your team to 
to reboot your emotional involvement in the product, having been so invested in the idea of toothpaste? Oh, absolutely. It was, it was so hard to reboot. Um, again, like been, we, we probably made over 20 different batches of toothpaste. <laughs> uh, and again, we were distributing it to like 50, 50 is not a small number, you know, friend, you know, convincing them to use it, just calling them, you know, bugging them every other day, you know, to collect this data. Um, and I think the other thing that, you know, really biased us to toothpaste initially was that was a product that like we knew we could make, right? Yeah. Like we had made an initial iteration of it, like no doubt we could get to something that was better than what we initially made. But, you know, on the cleaning tablet side, um, you know, on that end, you know, we, what we needed to do is like truly create something that never existed before. And it was like wholly unclear how we were going to do it. Or if, you, if it was even possible from a chemistry um, or a manufacturing perspective. Um, but- How do you figure that out? Because- whilst your background is very impressive you're not a chemist yourself so how do you how do you know if that's actually possible yeah 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 so that was um again we had this like really massive problem to tackle uh, but like my dad used to say he always says like how do you eat an elephant uh, one bite at a time. time exactly yeah. um and so you know we just started he started with google right we started with google we tried to like you know chase down as many, you know, potential manufacturers um, or chemists like, in and around the space. Um, and we got on the phone with them. We also turned to LinkedIn. Um, we messaged over a hundred chemists, again, trying to get anyone and everyone um, to just get on the phone with us, to give us their thoughts as to if they thought this was possible, um, why or why not, if they knew manufacturers, if they um, knew of other sort of chemists in the space that would be more well-versed mm -hmm. in this. Um, or if, if, if they were sort of the right expert, if they'd be willing to work with us um, in trying to figure this out. And what we, you know, what we quickly learned is that no one really has experience in this because it just hasn't been done. Like anyone that's been in the cleaning product space has only dealt with liquid. And we realized that we then needed to find someone just like us in the sense that like someone that was like crazy and inspired enough to believe it was possible and kind of willing to like run through fire and ice to do it, but different from us, but we need that person to have like a chemistry background. Um, so that ended up refining the surge and that ended up kind of providing this additional lens. It's like, we needed to find someone, we need to find a chemist that was like super entrepreneurial mm -hmm. um, and high energy and excited. About and did the internet provide? And the internet provided. <laughs> um, so we found our head of R&D on LinkedIn just, and it started with a cold, you know, LinkedIn message that we sent to him. And he at the time was the director of formulation over at Method. Um, but he had a really interesting background because, you know, not only was he at Method, which is, you know, one of the largest non-toxic cleaning products companies in the world, um, he also had a background in dietary supplements. Um, which is a, uh, a tablet format. It's a, it's a dry format. So he had touched both, um, which was really helpful. And we were able to convince him to get on the phone with us. And then he was in San Francisco at the time we were in New York. And then we convinced him to meet up with us twice in Chicago halfway. <laughs> and that's how we started sort of, you know, developing the relationship. Fantastic. So is this where Blue Land is today with a, uh, a dry cleaning tablet? Yes. So, um, so we launched um, about 100 days ago 
uh, with a set of cleaning sprays. So a multi-surface cleaner, a glass and mirror cleaner, and a bathroom cleaner. And they all come as, yeah, dry cleaning tablets um, that come paired with a reusable forever bottle. So you never have to buy or throw away another bottle again. You, when you need more solution, you just fill it up with more, more water and drop in another tablet. Brilliant. So is yeah. that a, presumably that's not a plastic bottle? It, so interesting. So this is also <laughs> where, where, where Lean, um, Lean has, has factored in. Um, so we've been, you know, we've tried to be consumer driven in everything we do. Mm -hmm. um, when we initially came up with the idea then for the cleaning sprays, I thought in my mind, the obvious choice would be a glass bottle mm -hmm. um, from a sustainability perspective. But that's a big assumption, and we, we tested that as well. And we were shocked. I was personally, and this is another one that was hard for me to accept for a very long time, but over 80% of moms specifically came back saying no um, to the glass bottle, that okay. it wasn't practical, that there was this risk of shattering, um, that it was heavy, and that ultimately, like, one of the worst things that could happen is, like, you're trying to clean up a mess, and you break that bottle, and then you have, like, a toddler running around. Yes, um, and anything that can go wrong will, will go toddler running around. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, but yeah, that, that's a, sort of another one that was hard for me to accept emotionally. Yeah. Um, and then we explored aluminum as well. You know, aluminum was then the um, next option that, that made a lot of sense, at least to me in a black box. Um, but then, you know, through consumer research and having people come in and use the bottles, quickly realized that because this was a new behavior and this was a new form factor, people really wanted to see that tablet, what that tablet was doing when it was in the water and what that final solution looked like. Oh, interesting. Uh, so yeah. the, the transparency of the bottle was a, was a key point to customer acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, for them, they feel like they, you know, they, they dropped a, a, a tablet and a bunch of water and now they're like, okay, now what, like, what does it look like in there? Did it dissolve? Is yeah. it, you know, clunky? Um, yeah. So it, it's not that the, there's no plastic at all, but you're talking about one bottle for continuous use rather than a new bottle every, you know, every month or so. Mm -hmm. Exactly. 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 So we, we partnered with cradle to cradle, um, which is also really important for us to do from the very beginning from the inception of the idea. And they're, um, the most comprehensive <coughs> certification mm -hmm. assessment program in the world from an environmental perspective. And uh, we work with them extensively on, on the bottle question, on yeah. sourcing a material and, and also just, you know, understanding the gives and takes of, you know, going glass versus, you know, we work with them to source this acrylic material, um, which is a non-leaching, you know, safe for people and planet uh, plastic. Mm -hmm. That, you know, can be recycled and upcycled, but it is still plastic. And ultimately, you know, our, you know, sort of benefits analysis showed that, you know, we were still better off producing a product that would be more widely adopted um, and then eliminating all the disposable um, bottles. That yeah. So that, that makes sense. It's kind of given the change that you want to make in the world, you could make a small dent if you were to be too, too militant or too sort of perfectionist with the nature of the solution, or you could make a big dent if you were to create something that people really want and that people were really going to, really going to take on board. I think that's really interesting. So is that, uh, how do you, how do you define or how do you sort of elevate a pitch 
uh, or, or caption Blueland today? Yeah, so um, as with Blueland, we're reimagining a range of uh, household cleaning products and personal care products to eliminate the need for wasteful plastic packaging. Great. And what I love about that is that, like I say, it's such a simple proposition. And as we've heard, it's simple doesn't mean that it was easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and it's been a journey to get to it. But from a consumer point of view, you know, this isn't one of those startups where you need to talk for 10 minutes for someone to understand what it is that you bring into the world. Um, you know, it's certainly culturally relevant. I know a, a lot of people uh, you know, realize that we need to do this for our planet and for our, for our kids. And I know that uh, I, I just know a ton of people that are going to want this immediately. Um, so fantastic. And, you know, kudos for you for, for, for taking it to that point. Um, so where are you today? I mean, do you, do you have product market fit? Are you actively scaling or, or where are you at? Yeah, so um, so the reception has been great. Uh, you know, I think sales have truly exceeded our our wildest expectations, and we've been, for better or worse, out of inventory already seven times over. You know, our social media presence has been also growing at an extremely fast pace. We're seeing a lot of engagement um, mm-hmm. from again not just like the hardcore environmentalists, but just a lot of regular consumers that really want to do better. Um, and we've launched our first new product since our initial launch. So we launched a liquid hand soap um, just two weeks ago, also a tablet refill format. And that sort of reception was also like off the charts. So all of that has been very exciting. Um, But I would say that we're still focused. We're at this, we're at the stage where we should still be focused on product market fit. Um, We are only a hundred days in. Mm. And I think as much as, you know, we could, you know, confidently say that, the message is clearly resonating. The people are people are very interested in the product. But all this momentum that we've been seeing has been pretty much like sort of ninety percent plus organic, which is incredible. Um, but I think all that said, I think we have yet to see repeat, right? Um, and I think you know part of par- product market fit is is not just can you get or can you trick consumers into buying your products, but then do they then receive them? and try them out and truly love them and love them so much that they're willing to come back and, right. and buy more because, you know, the products that we are selling are products that you run through and that you will need to replenish. Um, but with the cleaning sprays, you know, the, you, you go through them sort of every three to six months or so. Um, so we are still in a period where um, we need to, we, we are still, you know, waiting for the full picture of you on what, what the repeat rate will look like and it should be very high given that you know we've now you know sold a ton of consumers a forever bottle um which you know they should be holding on to once they run out of solution um you know as long as they have had a great experience like they should be coming back for more tablets yeah i I think that's really important though what what you said just to dwell on that that the signs are there in terms of the demand uh and on the feedback and there's, there's a lot of reasons why it should work but you know, I really admire your restraint in not, you know, not telling yourself that you have that true product market fit until you've seen that repeat behavior, because presumably that's what you need in order for the, the unit economics to make sense and to learn what the sort of the, the, the lifetime value of the customer is. I guess in a similar way, the same sort of lesson that you learned with Rockets of Awesome, that that 
cost of acquiring the customer needs to be offset by the the lifetime of revenue that you make from the customer, Mm -hmm. what what we call the CAC over LTV equation to, to figure out that, you know, you're not spending $10 to make $8. (laughs) Um, And, and so, you know, it sounds like what you say now is that you're, you're pausing and getting ready to see those, those numbers fall into place. And then that's the point that you can, you can really jump on the gas and, and, and scale this big and wide. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah exactly fantastic well i mean it sounds like uh like i said i love the proposition um it's a product i can't wait to try it myself uh, i genuinely mean that and um you know i, I really admire the journey that you've gone through to get there because I, I can only imagine that if you had stayed on that first hypothesis of toothpaste and poured all, you know, if you'd imagine you poured all of your resources into launching that toothpaste, you know, what would have happened? Would you be here today, do you think, as a business? I, I think it would be tough. I think at least those initial numbers show that if, you know, sure, we may have had a spectacular launch and then convince, you know, a ton of people to try it out um, once. Mm-hmm. But if then, you know, 80% of your customers don't repeat with you, um, you know, that's a, that's a very leaky bucket, you know, whether you're trying to build a sustainable business, I mean, a financially sustainable business, um, or, uh, or, or a, an investor backed business, because certainly investors are not going to want to say that 80% of your customers are are not coming back. Yeah. It makes total sense. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, congratulations on the path so far. It it, it sounds like a great startup with a bright future. Um, I guess just if you, take a step back and look at, you know, both this experience and, and the experience before, what would you say that you've, what are some of the things that you've learned in practice uh, with Lean Startup that perhaps weren't obvious to you when you just read the book and, and learned it in theory? Yeah. Um, I think the big one that I've continually kind of run into is that you know, cause when I first read the book, um, I was super excited and I was like, oh, this, this just, this really just simplifies everything. And yeah, I'm going to run these like quick, easy tests and get quick reads and then, you know, be able to like, you know, make these, you know, concrete steps forward. And I think that, um, at least my view is that, and maybe the grass is always green on their side, um, that methodology in my mind's easier when you're like a B2B startup, for example, I think, um, it can be harder for consumer brands um, where brand is an important input or, um, or for, you know, products and services where repeat might be the biggest risk or sort of leap of faith assumption. So um, for example, uh, you know, when I was at the startup studio, I had an idea for a dollar store. Um, This was about four or five years ago, an online dollar store, where we'd ship products direct to consumer from China. So, you know, think $1 iPhone cases, you know, $1 like necklaces and earrings, free shipping. Um, And so, you know, that on one hand, you could imagine um, could ramp pretty quickly because it's low price points, um, but you make very little margin, dollar margin off of very low AOV purchases. And so, you know, with that idea, I felt like the biggest sort of leap of faith assumption was that um, the repeat rate would have to be high to get right. to some sort of like, um, you know, sustainable LTV. Um, but that repeat rate is really hard to get to um, 
without actually then like launching a business, which is what I then had to do, right? I just single-handedly launched a very quick like Shopify site, you know, brought on like a thousand SKUs, you know, acquired 5,000 customers online. Um, and then for three months, we're sending them like emails via MailChimp um, to try to get to what repeat could look like, um, what that engagement would look like. And so um, it was hardly like super quick or cheap to do, um, but you know, it's a, it's a very big commitment to decide that you're gonna like launch this dollar store. And so I, I did feel like it was a good use of time to try to get to that answer quickly as to like whether, whether the, the repeat rate would be there to support the business. Interesting. So although the theory may be simple, you identify your riskiest assumption and, and, and you test it, the practice can be very difficult if the riskiest assumption isn't simple to test. Mm-hmm. So in that, that scenario, you could have, it wasn't possible to test a, a, a lifetime value hypothesis unless you actually did it over a long time. And so that required a, a fair amount of investment, but you're actually testing the right thing rather than the easiest thing. Yes, exactly. Interesting. And and have you also throughout your experience of lean startup, have you, is there anything that you've come to believe about lean startup or related fields that maybe some other people might disagree with you on? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So I wish this is a two way. So I, 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 I wish people hearing this, if they view, have different views, I, I wish they would reach out to me because I'd be very interested in hearing their perspective. Um, but having been in the consumer space, you know, having, you know, being a big believer in, in Lean Startup, um, I, at least I run into um, areas where I do feel like some consumer experiences or ideas are just downright impossible to mm. apply the methodology to. Um, so, one example that I'm not proud of <laughs> is um, had an idea for a Botox bar mm-hmm. concept. Um, so, you know, right now Botox is something that's administered primarily in doctor's offices. So the idea was how do we, you know, make this a more consumer friendly experience? Um, you know, one way that you could take it is administering pop-up Botox in nail salons. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's one of those things where you just can't go and ask people, would you do this? Right, because it's it's very different from asking, would you do this too? Like, will they actually go and receive, you know, Botox on their face in an in a nail salon? And um, you could try to like, you know, test putting up a landing page and seeing if people would sign up for an appointment. But again, this is a pretty like it's a risky like medical procedure. And so, you know, to start, you'd want you know ideally really beautiful photography, which is not fast and cheap. Um, but also because it's a you know relatively like risky like medical procedure, people are going to naturally look around for pr- any press you've received or reviews, um, and um, if they don't find any of that, that's also going to hurt whether they sort of sign up for this this Botox in a nail salon, if you know what I mean. Yeah, so, so they need that validation of other people having done it first. So it's a bit mm-hmm. of a chicken and egg problem there. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So is your um, is your is your thought here that that is something that just can't be tested by a lean startup process? I think that's one where yeah, I guess I've I haven't come up with the solution of how to test at least 
what I view is like the riskiest assumption in that one versus like, you know, some easier ones to test. Hmm. Well, I mean, let, let's do what you did earlier and ask the internet. So <laughs> <laughs> it, let, let's see if any of our listeners can come up with some suggestions for that. We, we'd love to hear you can, uh, you can tweet at us or, uh, put comments yeah, that would be amazing. What you think. I think that that's, that's a really interesting case study to dwell on. Um, are, are there any other, uh, anything else that you've, you've learned or read from other people that are writing or broadcasting new opinions or insights on Lee startup that you're finding interesting at the moment? Any shout outs to anyone else? Yeah. Um, I recently read the book essentialism. I don't know if you've heard of that one. Essentialism, the disciplined pursuit of less. Uh, it reminded me a lot of, um, of Lean Startup. It is a book by Greg McCown. And uh, I think it, you know, it, it, was, it was great for me both personally, um, in my personal life, as well as sort of like running a startup. But it's, it's just really about the fact that, you know, you have to focus. And I think there's so many things that either as a business or as, um, you know, individuals that we want to say yes to. Um, but, you know, time, you know, whether it's personal time or team's time is a finite resource. And, you know, how do we, how can we actually sort of pare down the way um, we think about sort of how we spend that time and the questions that we're trying to answer um, and sort of whittle the down things that are actually achievable. And I think that's really, it was just really helpful, especially being a startup at the stage that Blue Land is currently at, where we're just five people and we're just seeing so much opportunity everywhere. Like we're not just on the DTC side, but we have like major retailers reaching out to us saying they want to bring Blue Land and we have major like businesses reaching out to us saying like they want to put Blue Land in all their offices or all their hotels, right? There's, there's so, and then obviously there's, we have an incredible pipe with like a dozen, you know, different products that, you know, we have uh, made serious strides on formulating, right? There's so many places that we can be spending our time. And I think it was, you know, a good reminder um, that, that we need to focus and really, you know, prioritize because, you know, teams also, I think, you know, actually lose the most morale when um, they're under-resourced and, and they don't have sort of that clarity. Yeah. And, and that again is, is, is a, a thing that sounds easy in theory, but it's very difficult in practice is to, is to turn down some of those opportunities and just focus on the, the ones that are most pressing and most relevant to now. Brilliant. Well, on the subject of choosing our time wisely, let's uh, let you get back to your, get back to your day job and the mission that you're on. Um, I guess just a, a final couple of questions that stand out. Uh, one is, are you hiring? Because it sounds like you're on a great product and uh, a great future ahead of you. So we have a community of listeners that, that are already enlightened to the Lean Startup way. How, how could they reach you and, uh, and potentially work with you? Yes. So we, we are hiring. Uh, we are based in New York City. Uh, we currently have three open roles. Um, one um, as an ops operations and finance manager, um, another role for an acquisition marketer, and a third role um, for a senior visual designer. So, so please do reach out um, to me personally, um, or you can also um, check out our jobs on AngelList. Great. Well, let's hope that the internet provides on that as well. Amazing. And uh, where can people find out more about you or about Blueland? Yeah, so you can um, check us out at blueland.com. Um, spelled just like you would think. <laughs> um, <laughs> also, you can find us on Instagram at blueland. 
Um, and you can find me at Spaiji, S-P-A-I-J-I. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your story. I, I appreciate you um, having the vulnerability to to tell us what it's really like in the trenches. It it seems like such a wonderfully simple and successful idea. It, it's good, I think, for all of us to know that it's not easy, <laughs> not always the case that you stumble uh, right across the perfect answer from the outset. So I think it's helpful for all of us to hear that. So thank you very much to Sarah and uh, thank you to everyone for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, uh, please do rate and review us on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, if you didn't like it or if you have any feedback, please tell us. You can catch us on Twitter at Lean Startup and uh, on most of the socials there. And you can also find me at Gesto, G-U-E-S-T-O, on Twitter and Medium, or on LinkedIn at slash Chris Guest. Please let us know what you think. So thank you very much to Sarah, and we'll see you all next time. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to the Lean Startup Company podcast. If your company is interested in bringing the entrepreneurial spirit to your large organization, visit us at leanstartup.co or find us on Twitter at Lean Startup.